0: So we're going to be together this morning. We're going to look at his word. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. So just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love to give you one to take home. And with all of those Bibles that I know you guys have, uh, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at verses 5 through 13, our next little installment in this important chapter. And uh, I ran across uh, in my feed the other day, it was a sponsored link for a church which looked like it was up somewhere probably in the Seattle area. And it had these cool graphics, and it had this beautiful, happy family on there. And then it had this caption. It said, casual atmosphere, serious faith, no weird stuff. (laughs) So I'm not sure exactly what weird stuff referred to. And honestly, I didn't click through to find out because... I'm not actually looking for a church in the Washington area, but, uh, you know, I thought about it, and it, you know, truth be told, there sometimes is a little bit of weird stuff that can go on in the church. And much of it, of course, is not at all of the Lord, and yet some of it actually is of the Lord. And it's only weird because it's supernatural, Right? And it's outside the confines of our everyday human experience. And so when we do experience it, we don't exactly know what to do with it. But the fact is that the church is a supernatural organism. Right? We run on this supernatural empowering from this very supernatural Holy Spirit. And as a result, we are going to see some supernaturally weird stuff. And yet what I hope we're going to see in our text today is that as we just let the scriptures speak for themselves about one of these kind of weird things, that the weird actually becomes beautiful. And the weird actually reveals the wisdom and it reveals the heart of God. So that's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray and just ask the Lord if he'll bless. Father, we thank you so much As we said, for this time to be together, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to read it and to study it, Lord. We thank you so much that your spirit is here this morning to teach us. Lord, we pray, uh, as he promises, Lord, that He will guide us into truth this morning. We thank you, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when we last left off, remember that the day of Pentecost, we said, had finally and fully come, right? After nearly 1,500 years, it was fulfilled as we saw the Lord Jesus send his Holy Spirit upon the church. So we saw that there was, we talked about a sound to hear, right? There was this mighty, rushing, kind of a tornado-like wind that was heard throughout all of the city of Jerusalem. And then there was this sight to see. Remember, those tongues, as of fire, came to rest and they remained there on each of those believers individually there in the, in the upper room. And then finally, there was this miracle to be experienced. We saw that the Spirit came. We saw that the Spirit baptized. We saw that the Spirit filled. And as we continue this morning in our text and in the rest of this chapter, we're going to see that the Spirit spoke. So here in verse 4, remember, we had read that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here in response to this filling of the Holy Spirit, these 120 believers begin to speak with other tongues. And we'll see later that these tongues were languages that they had never learned. And we see here that they spoke these languages, speaking them in the spirit as he made this possible. It says it was him who gave them utterance. Or some of your translations say it was him who gave them the ability. Now later in verse 12, we're going to see that the crowd who saw this happening, they asked a question. They said, whatever could this mean? And frankly, people are still asking that very same question that these bystanders asked here on the first day of Pentecost. Speaking in tongues has been a focal point for significant controversy in the church. And so we're left with this question, what are we to make ...of this supernaturally weird phenomenon of speaking in tongues. Well, let's start by remembering what the Spirit was sent to do. He had just baptized these believers into the body of Christ. He had filled these believers for the work of the ministry. Right? They were being empowered for testimony. Remember, the Spirit of God had come to make the things of Christ... ...known and revealed to the church and then to anoint the church so that we could then take those very same things and make them known to other people. And these tongues are a part of that process. Now what we see in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is that the Spirit gives gifts to the church in order to strengthen his people for this work. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says that the manifestation of the Spirit distributing to each one individually as he wills. So this gift of speaking in tongues is just one of the many gifts that God gives to believers to aid in that building up process of the body of Christ so that we're equipped to be witnesses for him wherever we are, And whatever we're doing. And the next thing we see is that the time was right for these believers, wherever they were and whatever they were doing, for that work to begin right here in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Because look what it says next in verse 5. It says that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now remember we talked about the fact that Pentecost was one of those three major annual feasts that every Jewish male was required to attend, and other Jews as well would come from you know surrounding regions as they were able. As we see here, these are devout men, right? Jews from, it says, every nation under heaven. So these men were Jewish men, probably from families who had been previously carried away captive, remember, by the Assyrians or or carried away by the Babylonians. And yet, you know, were driven away, dispersed into other countries and yet still lived outside of Israel, They'd settled there in those foreign lands, they hadn't moved back to Israel, and yet they came back occasionally for these feasts. And what's ironic to consider is that that means that many of these men were probably the very same people who had come to Jerusalem for the last feast, the Passover, and they were probably amongst that very same angry mob that demanded the execution of Jesus, And here they are here again on this day to hear these words that the spirit would speak, right? The spirit descended like a tornado. It says in verse 6 that when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So hearing the sound of this mighty rushing wind all of these devout men who'd come from all over the world now come quickly from all over Jerusalem, and they assemble together. Now, what we believe is that the disciples were together, remember, in the upper room when the Spirit fell, but likely as the Spirit had come upon them, they probably spilled out into the temple courts, a place where thousands could assemble. We've seen the temple court area was this huge structure. It had all kinds of different colonnades and and porches, room for a multitude. And what's important here is that it was the sound of the wind that drew the people to the temple where the believers were now assembled, but it was the words that were spoken by the believers. That's what really captured their full attention. Now, most of these Jews were probably bilingual, right? They all spoke Koine Greek, which was the official common language, if you will, of the Roman Empire. And yet, of course, they spoke their own native tongues from where they came. So they were dumbfounded. Now, as they hear these Jews in Jerusalem speaking all of these languages of all of the peoples of all of the nations that surrounded the all of the Mediterranean Sea. And these weren't just any Jews who were speaking because when the huge crowd heard them, look what it says in verse seven. It says that they were all amazed and they marveled saying to one another, look, are not all those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Now, I don't want to say that the Galileans were hicks. But let's simply say this, that the Galilee was not known as the cosmopolitan hub of art and culture. It wasn't the center of education and of knowledge. What the Galilee region was known for was fishing and farming and livestock. And of course, the Galileans themselves were a much more sort of an earthy, rural, kind of rough-and-ready people, and they had kind of a country accent, if you will, that was easily identified. Remember, that's what got Peter into trouble, standing there around the fire. They were looked down upon by the much more cultured people of Jerusalem, and all of these things made these Galileans the perfect vessels through which the Spirit could speak because it was immediately obvious to everyone that something remarkable was happening here. Something that was supernatural. Something that was even a little bit weird was happening here. We've got this group of 120 followers of Jesus. Most of whom had followed him when he was up there in the Galilee. They'd come down here now into Jerusalem. And if you know, here they are speaking in ways that no one could imagine. And as I read here about these Galileans, I have to say I'm encouraged. Because if you're anything like me, I think sometimes we can feel like we're a little more from the Galilee than we'd like to feel. Right? We feel like we're not well enough spoken. We feel like we're not well enough equipped. We feel like we're maybe not learned enough. But remember what God encouraged. He says that he's chosen the what? the foolish things of the world, right? To put to shame the wise. And he's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And I'm not calling anyone in here foolish or weak. I'm just saying if the shoe fits, right? Because what he does, right, as he equips and as he enables and then as he uses us in these supernatural ways, the result will always be that it brings glory to him. Right, that people are drawn to him and people are not drawn to us. So it's good for us to be a little Galilean, right? A little more than, you know, because then we can be a big part of something big that our big God wants to do. So here are these uneducated, uncultured speakers. They're suddenly heard speaking eloquently in all of these different languages. They're heard by, it says in verse nine, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So Luke lists 15 different countries, spread out over three different continents, and visitors from every one of these places heard and understood the very things simultaneously. They heard and they understood as the Holy Spirit of God was magnifying the name of God, and offering praise to God in languages which were not known by those who were speaking. And that, in its very simplest sense, is the gift of tongues, as the Holy Spirit of God offers praises to God in languages which are not known to the people who are doing it. And we see this predicted by Jesus in the Gospels. In Mark's account of the Great Commission, Mark includes Jesus' words in uh, Mark 16, verse 17. Jesus says that these signs will follow those who believe that in my name they will cast out demons and they will speak with new tongues. So we see Jesus predicted it. We're going to see this supernatural gift manifest all throughout the book of Acts. We have it referred to and referenced and then explained for us in the New Testament epistles, primarily as we've seen to the Corinthian church. Because in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Paul deals specifically with all these manifestations of the Spirit. Apparently, many of the believers there at Corinth had received this kind of intriguing gift but didn't understand how to properly use it in their gatherings. And so Paul gives us an explanation. He says, first of all, that the gift of tongues is a language of prayer. It's given by God. Whereas the the believer can communicate with God beyond the limits of his or her own understanding. In 1 Corinthians 14, 14, Paul says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now he also tells us that the direction of tongues is always upward. It's always from God or from man, pardon me, to God. He says that he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. And we notice here in our text today, we see in every example where the gift of tongues is exercised in the scriptures, that those who are exercising the gift, they are always praising, they are never preaching. So the disciples here were declaring the praises of God, right? They were thanking him in their spirit, with all their might, in these unknown tongues. And the crowd that had gathered was just simply overhearing the things that the disciples were saying to God. And in fact, what we're going to see next week, the Apostle Peter is going to stand up just moments after this event happens. He's going to explain what's happening to the crowd. Then he's going to preach the gospel to them, because they weren't preaching the gospel in tongues, because tongues are never used in the scriptures for the preaching of the gospel. Tongues in the scriptures is never addressed to men. It's never an exhortation. It's never a prediction. It's a prayer of praise, and it's always and only directed to God. Paul also explains that the purpose of tongues, he says, is so that the inner man can be strengthened. He says that he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So speaking in tongues can help one express through the the prompting of the Spirit... It can help you express what's deep, deep down in your spirit. Those things that can't be expressed in words, when words aren't enough, when you can't find the words, the Holy Spirit can help you do that. And then Jude says that the effect of that is that our faith is built up. Jude talks about building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So it's a very profitable gift. And yet, interestingly, Paul also tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that the gift of tongues is not given to every believer. He's also careful to explain that though the gift of tongues can clearly have a very important place in the devotional life of some believers, it is to have a very small place in the corporate life of the church. Especially as the church gathers corporately. Now, in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-three, he says, "Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind?" So, this would seem—you know—you walk in on something that and like that would seem like some pretty weird stuff which is why we believe that the Bible teaches that that kind of gifting shouldn't be practiced in a public assembly like this on a Sunday morning. But he specifically says that there are opportunities when tongues can be practiced in the corporate life of the church, but in those settings, it has to be very carefully overseen. And here's what he says. He says, whenever you come together... When a group of believers is together, he says, each of you has a psalm or has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. He says, if there's no interpreter, then let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. So the gift of tongues can be edifying for everyone who's in attendance if it's interpreted into a language that all of those people can understand. And that's done by another believer who's been given a separate gifting for interpretation. So there's never to be a tongue shared without an interpretation given by the Holy Spirit so that everyone can be built up and can be edified and can be blessed by it. And can I tell you, it can be a tremendous blessing. Because I have been personally in many meetings with various groups of believers as we've been waiting on the Lord and we've been in prayer and we've been in worship and we've been praising him and we're allowing opportunity for those gifts to be manifest and someone will stand and they'll exercise the gift of tongues and they'll offer an utterance in an unknown language And then another will stand, and what follows is the interpretation of that tongue, which very often sounds like a song, or it sounds like a psalm. Something like you might read in Psalm 8, where it says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And let me tell you, it is always an incredible and a beautiful experience and it is something that is so edifying and it's something that's so very encouraging it's almost as if you had just been allowed to listen in for but a brief moment on a private conversation on some sort of a a heavenly exchange between the Holy Spirit as he offers praise to God the Father. And it is the best way I can describe it if you've never experienced it, it is as though heaven itself were speaking, because that's precisely what is happening there. Heaven is speaking. And I think that the scripture supports that an utterance in tongues can be either an earthly known language or an unknown heavenly language. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about speaking with tongues of men and angels. And so when when people praise and worship the Lord in tongues, it may very well be that it's a language unknown on earth, but very much known in heaven. Because it's the dialect or it's the language of the angels. And so tongues can be known or unknown to those who are hearing the the language of men or the language of angels, but it always is unknown to the person who is exercising the gift. And it's interesting, when you think about this, when you just do the math, which most of you are better at than I am, but there were at least 15 different languages that were mentioned. We know that there were 120 believers who were speaking in these tongues, so it's quite possible... That some of those 120 were speaking none of those 15 languages, but they were speaking a language that was only understood by the angels. It's just awesome. Now, what I think is important about the gift of tongues is not who has it or how it works, but the important thing is that the Lord is the one who's glorified when it's exercised. It's important that people are built up in the Lord. It's important that people are pointed to the Lord as he is lifted up. And that's just what we see in the next verse. We see all these men are there from these surrounding nations and they've heard these uneducated Galileans glorifying the name of God in tongues. And it says that they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? So here's this multitude of men who wanted to know more. And so the purpose of this public exercising of the gift of tongues here on this day as the Spirit was first poured out was it was very much to impress upon the Jews with the fact that nothing less than a miracle was taking place. And then to point their attention up toward heaven. We see later in chapter 10 that the Gentiles are going to speak with tongues. And that's going to serve as proof to the apostles that they had also received the Spirit. Then in chapter 19, we're going to see some Ephesian followers of John the Baptist who are going to do the same thing. And so we see that the Spirit uses this supernatural gift publicly here in this initial period just the way he's still using it today. And that's to build up the faith of these early believers. He's showing them that he is at work. And yet, with all of that said, here's where we get into trouble. Because this is where some can and still do make a grave mistake. And that's to claim that the manifestation of the gift of tongues is the necessary or the sole sign which is evidence that one has received the gifting of the Holy Spirit. There are entire denominations that declare that unless you speak in tongues, that you've yet to ever be filled with the Spirit. And I can't tell you how many adult, discouraged believers have come and they've shared with me experiences from their childhood where they were taken into a back room and they were taught by a teacher how to speak in tongues. They were given all these different, you know, meaningless syllables that they could just sort of string together so that they could be taken back out into the corporate meeting and they could show everyone else that they now had evidence that they'd been filled with the Spirit. And it led to discouragement the rest of their entire Christian life to be freed from that. If that were the case, right? if tongues scripturally is the evidence for the filling of the Spirit, then why is there absolutely no mention of tongues ever in connection with the conversion of the 3,000 at the end of this chapter or the conversion of the 5,000, which we're going to see in Acts chapter 4? Why is there no mention of it in Acts chapter 8 when the Holy Spirit is received by the Samaritans? And it's this kind of dogmatic, unscriptural teaching about tongues that has led so many to want nothing to do with tongues. But the question is, why would we want to reject something that's given to us by the Lord, something that's intended to build us up and to be used by him to direct people's focus toward him? There's a wonderful story that's told by Pastor John Corson. I think it's so fitting here. He writes that I'll never forget a meeting I attended at the Lake Arrowhead Hilton in California, where about a hundred believers had gathered together for a time of waiting upon the Lord. And Since hotel rules dictated that the bar remained open whenever the conference room was in use, the bartender stood in the back of the room polishing glasses while we studied and worshiped and prayed. Toward the end of the meeting, a fellow stood up and gave a beautiful utterance in tongues. Because there was no interpretation, the brother overseeing the meeting wisely said, Well, we thank the Lord for that utterance, but since there is no interpretation flowing here tonight, that will be our only public utterance of tongues. And when the meeting concluded, it says, The bartender approached us, and with tears running down his cheeks, he said, I must Talk to that man who stood up and prayed. How does he know my tongue? I'm Iranian, and he worshipped the true and living God in perfect Farsi. Needless to say, the bartender got saved that night. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 says that tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. It can be used so powerfully and as we consider the gift of tongues and as we're sort of forced to look at this controversy that sometimes surround it as well as all of the spiritual gifts right all of these gifts that we're going to see poured out and in operation as we study through this book we need to remember that the Lord is in the business of people and while the Lord will never contradict himself, he'll never contradict what he's told us in his word, he will often push the boundaries right, of the little boxes that the, you know, we put him in and the ways and the lengths that he will go to to make his love known to people. And I will say that there are those sincere and godly believers within the body of Christ who believe that the gift of tongues along with all the other spiritual gifts, right the word of wisdom and words of knowledge and prophecy, they believe that none of those gifts are still in operation today. They believe that they were given by the Spirit to be used only during this time of the apostles and that we have no more need of these gifts now that we have the completed revelation of Scripture and now that the church has been established. And yet we would disagree with that wholeheartedly. It is certainly another sermon for another day, but suffice to say that the gifts were given for the building up of the body of Christ and the body of Christ is still being built up. The body of Christ is still needing strength. The body of Christ is still desperate for the equipping and the enabling of the Spirit of God as we seek to understand the Word of God and as we seek to use the Word of God. At the end of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's instructing about the use of the gifts, and he says, let all things be done decently and in order. And so this is where we see there has to be a balance. And yet we still have part of the church today, they have the first part of that verse down pat. They say, well, let all things be done. And then there's the other half of the church who are experts on the second part. They say, hey, everything decently and everything in order. And yet the scripture teaches that there needs to be balance. The scripture teaches that we need to experience both parts of that. All things should be done, yes, but they need to be done decently And in order. And the problem about all this controversy is that when we get caught up in it, what happens, I think, is that we run the risk of missing out on the bigger picture of what's really happening here in our text this morning the bigger picture of what was really happening from the perspective of heaven and how that very much does apply to us as believers. Because here in the coming of the Spirit, right, this first manifestation of the gift of tongues on this day, Pentecost, in a very real sense, was a reversal of the judgment that came at the Tower of Babel. Remember at Babel... Because of man's disobedience, God so confused and he divided spoken language that men found themselves speaking in many languages and unable to communicate with one another. And now the Holy Spirit has come with power because of the obedience of one man, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit has come to enable and empower his witnesses to witness in many different languages all magnifying and praising God and the contrasts between the two events are so encouraging to consider because at both Babel and Pentecost people suddenly started speaking in different languages and yet the ability to speak in different languages at Babel was sent by God as a punishment but the ability to speak in different languages here at Pentecost was given by God as a blessing. You think about Babel, it was this man-made scheme designed to bring praise to men and to make a name for man, but Pentecost brought praise to God, and it glorified the name of God, right? The entire Babel deal was an act of rebellion by man, but Pentecost is this beautiful picture of the submission of man to God. God's judgment at Babel just scattered people. It produced division and confusion. But God's blessing here at Pentecost united believers in the Spirit. And what it did is it began that work of restoration of man with one another, all united in faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a work that Jesus said would reach to the uttermost parts of the earth. If we look at this, we understand that what was happening there that day was this visible declaration that the God of the Jews and consequently the gospel of Jesus was to be for the entire world. You think about it this way, that God gave his law in one language to one nation, but he declared his grace in all languages to all nations. So you see, it wasn't by coincidence at all that it, all of this happened on this day, when all of these devout Jews were gathered there in the city from every nation under heaven, right? Fifteen different countries, three continents, it says, encompassing the entire known world. Because I think it's such a beautiful reminder that God wants to speak to every person on earth he wants to speak to them in, in their own language. He wants to give them that saving message of his grace and of his goodness that can bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. You know, and instead of people staying together in one location at Babel to try to make their own great, what does Jesus say? That we're going to scatter to all points all over the earth to make God's name Great. There are always going to be language barriers and cultural differences, but it's through the power of the Spirit now that we can break through those for the sake of the gospel. And all of these languages that once alienated people are now used to proclaim the goodness of God. We take all these people who are divided by sin, and now we're united in the Savior. Right? We, and this, I think what's happening here you know, on this day in Acts, you think about all the chaos and the cacophony of sound. God is kind of weaving together and putting together this beautiful diversity of harmony. Right? People of all languages are coming together kind of like a choir, and we're all singing together and praising God. And so do you see, when we get caught up in all of the details about tongues and whatever, we can just miss out on the bigger picture. Because the beauty of Pentecost is that God wants to manifest his glory to all kinds of people. And so to that end, he ensures that his greatness is going to be proclaimed in all kinds of languages. We look at that list in verses 9 through 11, and it's easy to kind of stumble over all of those different tribes and nations. And it's kind of a long, obscure list. And yet remember, not one of those places... Not one of those peoples in that list was obscure to God. He knows each and every one of them in the same way that He knows our nation, and He knows our city, and He knows our neighborhood. The Holy Spirit knows our dialect, if you will, and he's still speaking to us, and he wants to speak through us, through ordinary people just like you and just like me. And yet I think it's one of the most, of the most ironic contrasts about this whole Babel Pentecost is when we consider there was confusion and there was bewilderment at Babel Because no one could understand what they were saying to one another. And yet the confusion and the bewilderment at Pentecost came, why? Because they could understand what the disciples were saying. So in Jerusalem here, the people were confused because they could understand. And that's because people so often can't understand the grace of God. Look at what it says in verse 13, our last verse of the morning. It says that others mocking said that they are full of new wine. These guys are drunk. Isn't it amazing how quickly Satan tries to tarnish the work of the spirit in the minds of an unbeliever? Undoubtedly, the disciples were under the influence of a power completely not their own, and yet it was not the influence of wine. It was the influence of the Holy Spirit. Was nothing less than the grace of God was being poured out on these people here at Pentecost. In the same way here, in his grace, God pours out his gifts on the church. He gives us these spiritual gifts so that people all around us will come to understand and come to know about his grace and be saved. He is the God of grace and of mercy, but he's also a God of justice, isn't he? And I think we see that his justice is seen there at Babel, and yet his mercy and his grace are poured out here at Pentecost. And now in this age, he is in this beautiful process of gathering all of his holy people together as the gospel now is going out and it's being proclaimed in every language, it's being proclaimed to all people. And I think that we see that the the consummation of this or the completion, the, the, the conclusion of all of this Pentecost miracle is seen in Revelation chapter seven. John says that after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all the nations, tribes, people and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So what do we do with all of this, right? I think that this chapter is such a great reminder That our great God is doing something great. And a reminder that he wants us to be part of what he's doing. He's gathering this people for himself, he's preparing a bride for his son, and he's giving us gifts. He's giving us spiritual gifts, right? Even some sort of supernaturally, maybe even weird gifts so that we can be a part of this incredible process. And as we watch these gifts given, studying through this book, right, we want to remain open to them because the truth is that God is still giving them out. Paul says, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, that we are to earnestly, what? Desire, we're to earnestly desire the best gift. What are the best gifts? The best gifts are the gifts that God's going to use to make his grace and his goodness known to the people around us. So I don't know where you are on the Holy Spirit. I don't know where you are on the gift of tongues. We'll probably find out next week when half of you don't come back. Yet my encouragement to all of us is we want to be part of this incredible work that the Lord's doing. And to do that, we need to be gifted supernaturally, and we need to be open to whatever gifts it is that he wants to give us. For some, it may be the gift of tongues. For others, it may not. It may be gifts of prophecy. It may be gifts of words of wisdom, words of knowledge. We don't know what the Lord wants to do because sometimes we're just not open to letting him do it. So our encouragement for the week is to pray, to desire these gifts, to be open as the Lord would give them. And then just let's see what the Lord would do. I think it'll be awesome, don't you? Amen. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And we thank you that where there is confusion, Lord, that you can bring clarity. Lord, we pray that, um, that whatever background we may come from, Lord, whatever our, our previous position has been, Father, I pray that your, your spirit would make uh, your word clear to us. Lord, that you would help us to understand this, Lord, as you understand it. Lord, we know that you knew the controversy that would come about this gift, Lord. And yet, you felt it important enough, Lord, in light of all of what you knew would come. You felt it was important enough to give. And so, Father, I pray that we would be open to it, Lord. I pray that we would desire it. Lord, I pray that you would use this gift of tongues... And any other gift you want to bestow upon us, Lord, use it for your glory. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.